The influence of West Coast AOR runs deep in the souls of many career musicians. Ask any studio or touring musician about their inspirations, and you're bound to hear an answer that would include the talented players who laced the liner notes of the great albums from the 70s and 80s. Tim Cashin is no exception. For the past 15 years, Tim has provided keyboard and vocal support to the legendary band Grand Funk Railroad. Prior to that, he has toured with the likes of Takanaka, Robert Palmer, John Sakata, and Bob Seger. Yet deep in his musical soul, there lied a passion for West Coast AOR. In 2005, Tim began to explore this musical path and created the tracks that became his personal Sgt. Peppers titled Find Us on the Dial. But the album sat in silence until now. To tell us more about this incredible album and the unique story about its release is Tim Cashin. Hey, Tim, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Cool. Well, first of all, we want to thank uh, Mikhail Engstrom, our correspondent in Sweden, mm-hmm. uh, for getting us uh, connected to you. And, and we'll talk more about the uh, really interesting connection you and Mikhail have a little later. But uh, we first want to get to know you a little more. And, uh, you know, since many of our listeners may not know about your musical career, let's let's go and, and chat about your, your musical upbringing. And, you know, from what I understand, your dad was a musician. In fact, he played acoustic guitar and I think he wrote country songs. And uh, tell us more about your dad. And, and was music his career or was it more of a hobby or passion for him? Yeah, it's an uh, interesting story. Um, I'm the baby of uh, four kids. I have an older sister, 16 years older than myself, an older brother, 11 wow. years older, and another older brother, 8 years older. So wow. they say I wasn't an accident, but I came along a little late, you know. And uh, <laughs> So by, by that time, my dad, um, I never really got to see much of his music other than, okay. you know, singing in church choirs and things like that. But sure. he actually... Um, I just recently did um, another CD that I'll talk about later or whatever, if you want to know about. But uh, I found he recorded a couple 78-speed records really? uh, <laughs> before, I was bo- before I was born, like literally wow. in the late 40s, I believe it was. And, um, you know, you can't find those turntables anymore, at least I can't. But yeah, I, yeah. I spent, um, and I had never heard, there were two of them. There were two uh, 78s, and um, I somehow got my hands on one of them and didn't let go. So yeah. I literally took it and put it on a 33 or a 45 speed and used my... It took me almost an entire day to get <laughs> enough tracks where, you yeah. know, I had to edit skips and anything. Anyway, I got to hear it for the first time, like, last year. Oh, wow. And, uh, wow. and you know, and he passed away in 96. So, um, yeah, and my family was amazed, too, because they'd never heard it. You know, we just... I probably used it as a Frisbee as a kid, you know, because it was like a... <laughs> It was literally like a steel, like oh, right. a plate, yeah. you know, like a plate. It right. wasn't vinyl. Well, it had vinyl on it, but it was, you know, like metal in between. And sure. So it was really unique. So that was a good time. But I really didn't get to see him do a whole lot of music. You know, occasionally um, my brother plays guitar. If he laid it around, my dad would pick it up occasionally and just strum through some things or whatever. But uh, I think uh, it, regardless, whatever uh, music he had, I, I definitely, um, it was definitely was passed along. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And my mother as well, she was a, she played piano. So uh, mostly church type stuff, you know, so not, yeah. not professional in any way. So. Sure. Sure. But, uh, that's kind of, yeah, that's the background for, for my family. Yeah. Well, even though we know you pretty much as a, as a keyboard player and a vocalist, you know, you started playing the drums, you started pounding them pretty, pretty early. You were like five years old, weren't you? Yeah. That's <laughs> another thing. Uh, um, my, Closest brother in age, Pat. He's the, he's the other musician in uh-huh. the family, basically not professional, but uh, um, he uh, being eight years older than me, 
uh, he was way into music, and I think he was taking like just snare drum and band in junior high school, <laughs> yeah. which would put me three or four years old grabbing a hold of drumsticks. You know, yeah. so that, that was my like my first really uh, music, you know, taste with music. And I would uh, uh, back in the day we had these, you know, there was four of us kids, <laughs> and, you know, a couple bedrooms, and we had these old Tupperware you know, rubber-type uh, trash cans exactly. that I would beg my mom every every so often to go around and empty all the trash, which I thought she kind of would dig that idea, you know, that I'm emptying <laughs> the trash out of the cat so I could turn them upside down, you know, and then hit hit on them with the sticks and stuff to, like, a makeshift drum set. And I, I, yeah, I had to be four or five whenever that was going on. Wow. Like, but uh, that, that lasted up until uh, maybe elementary school, and she decided that... Uh, it was time to stop the beating, and she bought a piano. <laughs> I think that was her her, her subtle way of saying, uh, you know, let's 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 quit beating. I was I would hit on chairs, you know, I, I'd hit anything I could, you know, made a thump sound or something. Yeah, you know. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing how much how many careers Tupperware has probably started from drummers. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah, no doubt. So your mom got the piano. Did you start pounding that too? Did you p- start picking it up? And uh, and how many other instruments had you been exposed to when you were you were a kid? Uh, well, my brother played guitar, mm-hmm. so um, I can remember. And he, when he got into probably high school, which would put me in elementary school, he he had a little band together, and um, they would rehearse at the house sometimes at our house in the living room or whatever, and. Of course, if they did it over the course of like a you know a couple nights, then the drums would stay set up, you know. And of course, you know Pat's friend—I can't remember his name now—but you know my brother's friend would say, you know, be careful if you get up here, you know, these aren't a toy, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so I would stay away. I, I would stay away from them just out of respect or whatever. But it was real tempting, you know. But just to see them perform—I mean, to practice and perform and stuff—as sure. you know got me in at a really, really early age, yeah. um, you know, as far as uh, finding yeah. really, you know, what I wanted to do kind of early on, you know, and mm-hmm. it definitely was uh, my love of music and passionate for, for that, that, uh, yeah, where everything kind of started. So, I, I mean, I dabbled a lot. I can play guitar. I've actually recorded a CD, but I play guitar way more as a recording. I'm a recording guitarist, meaning... I'll write the song, I'll figure out the part, you know, and I'll yeah. play that part and then move on. I, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not a, a song player by any means or whatever, but uh, uh, just the, knowing the theory from, uh, you know, piano and just and studying music theory and stuff when I was a kid, I, you know, I can relate to certain, you know, when I got the guitar, oh, okay, theory, you know, you just kind of kind of pick it out. I've never had a lesson or anything on that, so. Right. Well, you know, you, like we said, you, you started playing drums when you were five. I think it was around nine years old. You picked up the piano. But I'm curious to know, when did you find your voice and knew it was also a part of your musical repertoire? That is kind of um, uh, interesting, too, because um, I I was, you know, Pat sang and my dad sang as well. And um, so I started singing early on. I can remember um, uh, actually sitting in on one song, you know, with my brother's band when he was in high school, you know, they played some sock hop or something, you know, and they pulled me up to sing harmony. I can't imagine what it sounded like. <laughs> but um, just the encouragement and stuff at that early age, yeah. you know, being up on stage and all his, you know, his friends, again, are eight years older than me. So yeah. all of his got friends and girlfriends and stuff are coming up and just like, oh, that's so great. You know, that does a lot to a young person you know, ego as far as, uh, I could have sounded terrible for all I know, but 
just the uh, you know the encouragement and stuff that was coming from people back then when I was mm-hmm. that young. Right, really, right. you know, kind of helped support my my thinking. So, but the singing thing, um, I did sing a lot. I was a big. I had a, a bunch of influences and um, kind of across the board of all styles and stuff. But it's funny because I mean, when I started, when I picked up the piano, I was I was playing. Uh, I mean, I was taking lessons, but my ear was far more developed than. Uh, then my, my, you know, the lesson part, the reading music type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. so I was, you know, challenging myself at an early age with trying to even pick out, um, you know, Gino Vanelli chords and stuff, you know, at, at an early age. And, and that really is where I started focusing in on, on, you know, my harmonic, you know, mm-hmm. Tim's harmonic music thing, you know, yeah. and, uh, I, I wanted it to be you know, different and not just the typical, you know, kind of more pop cookie cutter type thing. So, mm-hmm. well, you, you eventually studied music, I think, at Appalachian State uh, University. But I think two years uh, into it, you, you were invited to the University of Miami's music program, which, you know, is a very prestigious music school. And tell us about your experience at the U. <laughs> and I'm sure you met some. Ah, of the, there you go. <laughs> I'm sure you met some amazing. Nice. Yeah, you, I, I bet you nice. met some amazing musicians there. Yeah, really. You know, that's that's the thing. Um, uh, when people ask me, like, you know, because I'm from a very small town north of Charlotte, um, uh-huh. you know, and when I was growing, I mean, it was literally in the county of, uh, of Charlotte, Mecklenburg County, the north end, and it was literally considered, you know, we were considered the country, you know, just, you know, because we were just out in the sticks, so to speak. Now, you know, quite ironically, it's home of NASCAR and, you know, uh, Lake Norman is huge, so it's just changed a lot. But it, it, the early going um, with uh, the studying part, I um, once I got up to App uh, for two years, I tried four different majors really, um, and uh, you know every semester I tried different major, you know, music uh-huh. merchandising and music education. But I studied one with voice, but it was all classical, you know, and I, I kind of read it one time. What what I was wanting to do, yeah, and um, so but the fun here's a funny story, and and uh, this is this is 100 percent true, and I'll I'll keep names from uh, getting anyone in trouble up there. But <laughs> I mean, I love the school. I think it's uh, I think it's I think it is probably uh, in the area now, and it's easily you know probably state of North Carolina and the east east you know not for a smaller school. It's got one of the better music schools up there. Sure. At the time, I was. Um, my around I made a forty five RPM record uh in uh tenth grade, nineteen I guess it was seventy nine eighty. Okay. And uh it was recorded at Arthur Smith Studios where um uh James Brown actually recorded uh Pop's got a brand new bag, I think. Um mm. so it was like a you know, a really nice studio in Charlotte and um so I was recording stuff back then. Um, you know, me and my buddies would save up, you know, our work in the fast food chains and stuff and save up enough money to go in and, and record a tune or two. So the funny story that I'm getting to about Miami is um, when I was at App, the second year, I wrote and recorded uh, a song and, um, you know, sang on it and, and played uh, Rhodes. And, and then my buddy, uh, Kenny, played drums. And my friend played trumpet cue. You know. So anyway... I'm recording that song, and I'm just, I've decided that, you know, the Miami's not, I mean, the app's not really going to work for me, but, um, so in my last, um, I forget what it was called, a jury, I believe it was, where mm-hmm. you had to go in and, 
and sing for your major, you know, and, and do, you know, do your semester's worth of work in front of the, the judges, yeah. so to speak, and get graded. Um, my professor there really liked my singing and didn't want me to leave. He, he was a fan of mine. And I just happened to play him this song. It's called Love's Affair. And, um, you know, that I recorded in the studio, and he flipped out. He, he <laughs> you know, he's like, this is amazing. Of course, it's not classical at all. You know, it wasn't rock. <laughs> right. It was kind of right. like, you know, kind of West Coast they are. You know, that, that type mm-hmm. of um, is what I was into back then. And um, so he said, do you mind if I, it was on a cassette, do you mind if I play this in your jury for the other judges? You know, and there was, you know, the, the other voice faculty. And I said, no, that's fine, you know. And, um... So, you know, I'd sang my classical pieces and stuff, and then my professor says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this. Uh, I think you all should know, you know, this is what Tim's passion is, and, uh, you know, I think you should hear it and, and you know, use it as part of the, the, uh, his, his grading thing. So hmm. he plays the tape, and uh, one of the professors, I, you know, I can't remember the other two. Probably, they probably didn't even comment on it, but one of the head faculty guys there at that time um, put an F minus minus on it and said, uh, <laughs> said, this is not singing. This is speaking tones, exclamation point. Oh, God. And, um, you know, I was already, you know, applying to Miami. So, it, you know, so, it, you know, it, it kind of stung a little bit, but, um, the funny thing is that cassette tape, uh, that summer when I, when I finished up my second year at app, I, I applied to Miami and they needed to, I couldn't go down to Miami to audition. So I was speaking with the professor there, and I said, well, can I send you, you know, a, a tape of my music, and, and will that work as an audition? He said, well, we'll try it. Yeah, we'll see. That same tape that got me an F minus minus got me a scholarship <laughs> into the University of Miami. <laughs> Holy cow, that's awesome. Uh. <laughs> so there's a study. Well, I have, I teach a couple students now or whatever, but that's one of my favorite little lessons in life that, you know, Whatever you know, don't if you get knocked down once or whatever, you don't know what the other side of the, the field. You know, you, you exactly. have no idea. So yeah, I literally got accepted on that tape and and a scholarship. And when I got down there, uh, the voice a couple of the voice faculty didn't believe it was me. They're like, "Where'd you do this?" And I was like, "I have a studio in Charlotte." You know, <laughs> you know. So, but they they were they were highly impressed. You know, so. Uh, again, you know that wow. like, that encouragement alone, because yeah, you're right. That the school, that music school, is. Uh, I mean, I, I I I guess I'm biased, but I would easily say it's um, the best around. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. So that's how that came about. Yeah, like they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So I mean, it's just <laughs> absolutely, yeah, exactly. So. Definitely. Wow, that's that's an incredible story. Yeah. Hey, you know, when you graduated from school, then um, you know, one of your first gigs was playing percussion and le- you know, lending your vocals to uh for a Japanese artist, uh, Masayoshi Takanaka. And interestingly enough, you know, a member of his band that you were replacing was John Sakata, right? Who uh you had uh Correct. who was a friend in college and so could you tell us a little bit about uh you know, your involvement with uh, Takanaka and 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 also we're sort of really curious as to how uh how and why Sakata was on his way out um th- well th- that whole came that came about uh that was right in the uh you know gloria stefan mm-hmm. miami sound machine days which right. miami sound machine basically was the concert jazz band rhythm section you know yeah um and uh they uh, takanaka was really interested into 
glorious sound. Um, Clay Oswald and George Costas, I think, were producing mm-hmm. it at the time. And um, they really, talking out, they really liked that sound. So he, on his tour, uh, he got uh, he got Emilio, you know, to produce his record, mm-hmm. and um, and that's how Cicada got involved in in the re- you know in in with Takanaka. He went over and did it, the first tour with Takanaka. I think it was it might have been the summer or two summers before I went. Okay. But um, yeah, the second tour, uh, Cicada just didn't want to go, or he was focusing on you know trying to do his own thing his own i can't thing, yeah. you know I, I never really discussed any of that with him he right. just he actually i think uh mentioned to emilio you know like hey why don't you go check out my friend tim you know and and see if he wants to do uh the tour and um so that's how that came about when my first year uh at uh the u i remember it was almost the first or second day i walked into um they were doing uh you know, like um, welcoming the students and, you know, having performances to show what they can do, you know. And uh, he was one of the first people that I saw perform, um, and it just blew my mind, just across the board. His vocals were unreal, yeah. and the rhythm section was just, you know, I'd never seen anything like that, you know. It was just top-of-the-game players right in front of me, you right. know. And... um so that's uh was my introduction to miami and um and then the second year, I guess Cicada didn't really want to go back uh, and and do the tour again, so they asked me, and uh I said, yeah, here's another little funny uh true story um when uh Emilio was asking me, you know like you know you're gonna be doing some background vocals." you know, probably a little bit of dancing or something like that, and, and <laughs> percussion. And, you know, I said, percussion? He goes, yeah, yeah, you know, shaker, tambourine, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, I asked the people that had been before um, the, on the tour. There was myself and uh, three others from Miami that went over there, and I think they, one of them had done it the prior with John, and they said, yeah, just tambourine. Anyway, so I, I get off the plane, and... Uh, in uh, Tokyo or whatever, and we go straight to the rehearsal studio, and we um, they're they're presenting us to the you know the record execs and everybody there that's going to be doing the tour and the whole thing, and there's an you know there's they go over the, all of the where the, the drums are going to be here, drums are set up here, and this and this. So when they're finished with the entire uh, setup and presentation or whatever, and mm-hmm. they said any questions, and I raised my hand. And I said, and they said, yeah. And I said, I said that's great. I said, um, who's going to be playing the, uh, the the percussion kit over there? Because it was four congas, two timbales. It was a full on, wide open, per- <laughs> full on percussion thing. And I raised my hand and I said, excuse me, who who's uh, who's the who's playing the percussion congas, timbales type? <laughs> and the room got dead silent. And then all the all the suits, I guess you'd say, you know, like. Ah, funny, funny, you know, like like I was like joking. Know, I had no idea. Yeah. I thought it was going to be a shaker and a tambourine. Oh, so my gosh. all of a sudden, <laughs> there's an entire uh, entire kit set up, and the opening song, uh, <laughs> "The Party's Just Begun," literally has conga timbali breakdown. Yeah, where it's <laughs> right Tim <there>. Solo. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yep. Yeah, oh boy. you've got your whole LP set up all around, 20 different percussive drums, and you like, okay, give me a tambourine. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, 
So yeah, all that all that oh, beating on those uh, you know furniture back as a kid luckily yeah. paid off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I had never ever played a conga kid or you know I mean I played <laughs> drums before trap you know set or whatever, yeah. but I never owned a set you know. So um, yeah, I had to like really just buckle down, and I mean I enjoyed it. I, it to this day, drumming is my favorite thing to do. You really. Know? Um, uh, so I had a blast, but the, that, that the initial shock, I about, you know, I about had a heart attack because I was stuck, you know, I was there for two months and, you know, there you go. Here's your, here's what you're doing. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know. That's great. But it was, it was fun. Well, that, that gig with uh, Takanaka was, you know, kind of a stepping stone to other great gigs, you know, such as joining Robert Palmer's uh, tour as a backing vocalist. And, you know, when I think about Robert Palmer's music, you know, you know, Really solid vocal harmonies were a big element of his sound. And tell us about working with Robert and, and what you learned from going out on the road with him. That was um, every tour I've been lucky and fortunate to do have have been you know just wonderful in their own you know their own way, their own special way. Yeah, the Robert Palmer. Um, I had just moved back. The Takanaka uh, tour happened literally. I think I. But after I graduated, I like immediately left uh, school, like within that week or something. It was that quick. Came back to Miami and stayed and worked for about a year. And then I was kind of planning on going home, you know, moving out of Miami. I'd been there for eight years, seven years. And staying at home for a bit, bringing stuff back, and then going out to L.A. That was my original plan. And um, so while I'm back home trying to prepare to, to go out to L.A., I get a call from a friend of mine that was helping me, uh, I wouldn't, you know, kind of a manager, if you, you know, if you have that really when you're playing top 40 gigs, you know, but, um, you know, so I was playing in cover bands and, uh, he was, he would help me out and keep me busy down there. He called and said that Robert was rehearsing in Miami for a world tour and that now my buddy Cliff, that was kind of my manager guy. He had a bunch of my cassettes because every time I recorded stuff, by that time I had a an eight track in my dorm room, you know, that I was recording stuff with, and uh, so everything I recorded, I'd let, I'd give him a tape. So he had a bunch of tapes, and he played it for Robert. And but Robert was looking for a background vocalist, and uh, one of the sound machine guys um, happened to hear him and said, "I know of a guy," and I was already back in North Carolina. And, uh, yeah, and then this uh, sax player, Ed Kaye, um, uh said, yeah, this guy would be great. And so Cliff called me and played the tape for Robert and said, hey, can you fly down here tomorrow? Robert wants to meet you. And um, I'm like, sure, you know. <laughs> so that's kind of how that came about. I literally went down, had lunch with wow. him, and he uh, basically, you know, he was, you know, I, I knew his music. I was familiar with his hits and some, you know, some deep cuts yep. um and i was a big fan you know i didn't have every record that he had ever done or anything like that yeah but um uh so he basically says hey tim i've heard your tapes um i i i totally think that you're the guy for this tour if you want to do it i mean like literally i think that's how the conversation started um he's like here's a set list you know, do you think you can uh learn these songs and basically what i want you to do is sing my harmony parts that I, because he would always do most all his harmonies on his records himself. Yeah. So basically I was, I was, you know, trying to mirror him as best I could. You right, know? right. And, um, yeah, what an experience. I mean, it was, um, <laughs> it was unbelievable. And 
I mean, the Takanaka was my first, you know, my first professional, uh, you know, touring uh, gig, and it was in Japan for two months, and then this one was, uh, you know, right behind it, and this yeah. one was like world, like, you know, like Amazing. four months in Europe and four months in the States, and then he was even considering, you know, China and all, you know, Asia and all this stuff. So it was a it was a big deal. I mean, that was my you know really big big deal kind of first yeah. tour type thing. And I can't say enough good about uh, the experience I had with Robert. He was just an amazing yeah. uh, talent. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, I always knew him as, as just a singer that you know wore nice suits and had hot chicks singing behind him. <laughs> and, uh, Love that he, video. But he. Uh, <laughs> but he uh, you know, I didn't know him as a as a musician because you know you might not just pick up on that because really right. you know you just see him sing in the videos and stuff. But he was a very very serious musician and uh, knew exactly what he wanted. Right. You know, across the board, everything. Yeah. So he mm-hmm. was he was a lot of fun to work with. Cool. Well, you know, it's kind of ironic because after that, you you caught up with John Sakata again, and when his career was taking off, you, I think you uh, went out on tour with him, and then I, a few, I think a few years after that, you or a short time after that, you also caught the attention of uh, Bob Seger, and then uh, yeah, and, and then uh, I think you know you eventually rejoined Robert Palmer again a few years later. But tell me about Bob Seger and how you connected with him and, and joined his tour in 1996. Okay. Uh, yeah. Again. Um, I think what I, I might have gotten sidetracked earlier on when I said that, you know, that I was, people used to ask me, being from this small town outside of Charlotte, you know, like, how did you score these tours, you know? <laughs> being here, there's no music scene here, there's no this, there's no that. <laughs> and for a long time, you know, it took me a little while to realize it all basically stemmed from the U. I mean, yeah. it, uh, you know, the contacts and whatever that I made down there, Yep. And here's an example. Um, well, the Sakata thing, I knew, you know, I knew John. So, um, you know, when he was putting his tour together, my name came up as a keyboard player slash uh, backup vocalist. The And this is kind of weird. Yeah, um, I moved away from Miami. I think it was 89 or 90. Uh-huh. Um, did the Palmer tour in 91. 93 was Sakata. 96 was Seeger. And one of my friends, uh, guitar friends, that... Um, was, you know, down at Miami. We may have put a, a small little demo tape together, you know. And um, he, uh, his name's Tim Mitchell, and he, uh, out of the blue, out of, you know, hadn't heard from him in probably five or six years after leaving school, I get a call on my phone. And he's like, hey, Tim, this is Tim Mitchell. I'm up in uh, Detroit, and uh, Bob Seger's getting ready to rehearse for a tour and I put your name in as, uh, you know, keyboardist slash backup vocalist. Are you, are you willing? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know. So again, just from the you, a friend yeah. of mine who, you know, we hadn't talked in years. And, uh, so luckily he remembered me and, uh, and then, uh, that's how that came about. And that was a, uh, that was a mind blower, you know, <laughs> just, you know, you just, like, like I say, you just never, you know, in this business, you're, right. you're lucky to get work, you know, and I've always felt lucky and fortunate and blessed by these tours and stuff. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it stems back from just, you know, creating uh, 
some good friendships and yep. from the U and whatever. And yeah, that's how the secret thing came about. That's amazing. It's all about the timing, you know. Um, you know, we're well aware, uh, Tim, that you're currently a, a player in, in the, the band Grand Funk Railroad. And uh, you guys are always touring pretty extensively. And, of course, the band consists of its two founding members, Don Brewer and, and Mel uh, Sacher. Um, and, uh, you know, so how long have you been with the band? And uh, and you're also playing keys with them try, uh, also, right, other than vocals? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that came about um, after the second Palmer. Uh, and, and quick story here, too. Um, after I got that first call from Palmer, um, I had, uh, this was 90, yeah, 91 or, yeah. Um, I had a, you know, a landline back then, and I still have that landline with me now, that same number and landline. Uh, <laughs> I hung on to it forever because, because after the, after the first Palmer tour, some of the bandmates, the guitar player and percussion and drummer and some of the guys, um, you know, that were in the States, uh, we would stay in touch, but not much. But then again, completely out of the blue, in '99, after the Seeger thing, three years after that, uh, yeah, I, I still have the the small little mini cassette tape too of Robert um, message on my machine saying, "Hey Tim, this is Robert Palmer." Really? And, you know, eight years had passed, I hadn't heard a word from him. Hey Tim, this is Robert Palmer. I'm uh, I have a new album out, and I'm going to be playing the David Letterman show. Uh, you know, two Fridays from now, would you be willing to come up and sing with me? I'm going to use, uh, you know, Paul Shaver's band. I'm not going to use the band, but I need a, I need your backup vocal. You know, call me back. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I went up and I went up and did that, and then that followed with the tour in '99. When that was over with, then I got a call from Don Brewer on the same same landline. You know, um, shortly thereafter, <laughs> and he said that. Uh, uh, he was up there rehearsing and thinking about putting the project together. Would I be interested? And uh, yeah, and, and that uh, that happened. He uh, he knew the Seeger guys because Don had played drums on the previous Seeger tours. Oh, okay. um, the tour right. that I went out gotcha. on, he mm-hmm. was getting. They were getting Grand Funk together for a tour, so they got okay. a, a Kenny Aronoff on drums. Oh, okay. So. Um, so that was the year that I went out, but but Don knew of me through that you know through the secret camp that way, and when and when Don put this uh, new band together in ninety nine two thousand, yeah, he that's how he called me. Gotcha, very so, cool. So Grand Funk Railroad primarily is touring right now. Are are there any plans for them to record any new music, or are they just on the road? We yeah yeah it's fifteen years wow. now I've been with these guys and I really again, lucky and blessed uh, yeah we started in two thousand mm-hmm. and we do about uh, target number is about forty shows a year wow. and um, it's all uh, like a commercial airline it's not bus tours so you know <laughs> we we play a lot of um, you know state fairs county fairs outdoor venues and that kind of thing you mm-hmm. know and it's winter months maybe some casinos and. Uh, yeah, so it's 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 busy. I mean, the summertime uh, can you know from June to October probably is most of the shows, maybe thirty, you know, or some shows, and then the other six months, maybe eight or ten, you know, it just depends on on how they go. But yeah, there's fifteen years with with these guys, and it's uh, it is. Uh, I mean, I, it's a great, great 
family. You know, it, it's almost a family more than a band to me. You know. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, your body of work has also led you into the role of a producer as well. And and one of the projects that comes to mind is your work with singer Jill Jensen on her self-titled release, and I think it was back in what two thousand six. And uh, tell us more yeah. about your connection to Jill and, and how you got involved with her project. I think she went to school with you, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, my degree at University of Miami was, uh, it's called Studio Music and Jazz okay. slash Vocal. So they have, that's their non-classical, they have a jazz department or a non-classical department. So, you know, it'd be Studio Music and Jazz guitar, Studio Music and Jazz, you know, trumpet, whatever. So mine's Studio Music and Jazz Vocal. And... um that program was uh, run by my best friend slash professor Larry Lappin, who um, was the one that you know got me down there and got me the scholarships and, and everything. And um, so it was the jazz vocal program that um, I was concentrating my performance-based um, part of the degree in. And Jill, and I met Jill there. She was there for, I think, about a year and a half, maybe. Okay. Um, she's from Seattle, uh, and... Uh, yeah, and I met her there, and that was, you know, again, I, the years I might be missing, but I'm guessing it was 86, 87, somewhere in there maybe. Okay. And, um, and then she left and went back back home to Seattle, and we maybe stayed in touch a little bit, but not really a lot, you know. And then when I was in Grand Funk, we were doing a show up in Seattle way, and she saw in the paper, you know, she saw my little mugshot, she said, and I saw your little, you know, face in the paper. And so she uh, called and got my number, and we, you know, we, we kind of rekindled the friendship then. And, um, yeah, and then I had I had just, uh, I had given her a project that I recorded, um, you know, the guitar, kind of rock guitar project that I put together, and she had always wanted to do a CD, so she was like, you know, did you do this? And I said, yeah. And she said, where did you do it? And I said, well, you know, out of my, you know, my home studio type of thing. And she said, well, would you be willing to, you know, write and and, and produce a, a CD for me? And I was like, absolutely, you know, be but you know, because the way the Grand Funk uh, tours are set up, you know, we'll play. Like last week, I was last Thursday. I left, played Albuquerque Friday, back home Saturday. And then I don't leave till Friday this week, you know, and play in West Virginia and back home Sunday, you know. And then the following week is in Miami. So it allows me time to, yeah. you know, work on things at home. So it's great. It's a perfect, you know, situation for, you know, being able to create and be on the road. Sure. That does sound good. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, despite all the music experiences you've had, you know, one genre of music that seems to be near and dear to you is is what we call West Coast AOR. And, you know, I understand you're a big fan of Pages as well as some of the, you know, some of these current musicians that keep, you know, the West Coast, you know, sort of feel alive, such as guys like over in Norway, like Ule Barud. And tell us more about how this style of uh, music has influenced you and in the motivation to record a West Coast style album. Yeah, that's um it's funny because uh this this record um Finest on the Dial is I guess like my bucket list. It's like number 1 of bucket list musical things, cre- you know, creation-wise for me. Sure. Um you know, I said earlier, I mean, I as a kid, I wanted to be, you know, I, you know, a, a you know, writer and performer, you know, Tim Cashin kind of thing. And I don't take anything away from, uh, like I say, I feel lucky and blessed and fortunate to have been a touring guy. But, you know, I had that idea of having, you know, uh, a solo thing out for a long time. But that particular music that I grew up listening to, as as you know, in the States, um, 
you know, it had it had what what I would consider a nice heyday. You know, it just it just wasn't long enough, and then yeah. it just kind of you know it's just kind of unfortunately you know faded. Um, it, from my perspective and from where I'm at, I mean, I don't know all over you know how 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 popular, but um, so that particular record, um, I I came to the conclusion I was like, hey, I've got my studio, you know. Uh, I, I can do this and, you know, I'll just hand it out to friends or whatever, you know. Um, but it's, you know, I tell people that, um, you know, music to me is, is, it's almost therapy, you know. I mean, if I'm not writing oh, sure. and recording for a long period of time, I, I find myself getting, you know, edgy and, you yeah. know, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big part of my life. It's really, you know, I have to be doing something like that. And this particular project was one that I was wanting to do. I had songs that I had written back in college that were similar to this type stuff. Maybe not as polished, but you know, just the um, the B cuts of uh, Bobby Caldwell records and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. I was kind of emulating Gino and Steely Dan and you know, right. Pages and all that type of stuff early on was a big influence in my writing because it was so. Uh, different and unique harmonic wise, you know, um, and uh, that was always a big uh, part of my passion for music was the harmonic uh, the textures and, and and whatnot. And so that's even today. I mean, you know, um, so that's kind of how that project, you know, came about. And I just decided that I was just going to go ahead and, and do it, you know. And um, I'm programmed a lot of the stuff and. Had uh, was lucky to have some some of my best friends players come over and, and help out on this project more than any other project that I've done. Yeah. So um, yeah, that, that, this this project really, like I said, this if there's if I if I ever had a Sergeant Pepper so to speak, this yeah. would be, you know <laughs> this would be it. I mean I, I mean I Stevie Wonder once said somebody said what's the best song you've ever written? He says I hope. I hope I haven't written it yet. Right, you know, that right. Kind of stuff. <laughs> yep. I agree. I agree with that too. Yeah. So on this project, but yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of uh, labor love to to get this project together. Well, we sort of, after listening to it ourselves, we sort of understand that it is a labor of love. But let's talk about Find Us on the Dial, because, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's just recently uh, being released. In, uh, it was released on December 2nd and only in Japan. But the fact is that it was released only recently is somewhat misleading in that this album was sort of recorded 10 years ago and or in the process. And wh- why did you sit on this album for, for, for so long, almost a decade? Uh, again, um, this, well, I mean, because of the internet now, you know, you can get your music out to people, Mm -hmm. um, a lot, you know, easier. Um, it wasn't that I, uh, wasn't confident about the record. Um, I had plenty of friends, you know, saying, hey, you should release this. I really didn't have an, I mean, I didn't know of of an outlet like, you know, P-Vine, um, for, for this type of, for this type of music, you know, and, um. You know, heaven forbid me at 50 years old or whenever, I guess I was 40 when I was doing that, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go walk into an office and try to sell this at 40. <laughs> you know, I just didn't have a, a good uh, a, a good uh, bird's eye view of what I thought the okay. music right. industry would be looking for, especially yep. of a project kind of like this, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, not because I didn't feel, you know, the music that I did, right. you know, something a little bit special or something, but... Just marketing it, you know. I just so that's kind of why I just sat on it, and um, 
uh, I had always, I mean, I have files and files on my computer that's, that'll, it'll say hope for release in 08, you know, like, yeah. you know, like you know, three years after I did it, I was like, okay. So, um, but yeah, pretty much the entire CD was completed in 05, 06. Um, and I would occasionally, um, open up the files and just go in and, and if I got a new piece of gear or something like that, you know, yeah. mastering gear or something like that, I would go in and, and do a little tweak remix and remaster, you know, and then say, Hey, I should do something with this, you know, but, and then I, and then I never did. But, um, you know, it's it, it, the story about how this happened. Um, I haven't really posted or. Um, I, I want to post it somehow and let people know how this came about because, uh, yeah, it was a guy um, that I've never met in, in Sweden, Jorgen, who uh, I, I don't know how to say the, these guys' names. I was it's Mikael. Yeah, Mikael Engström. Right? Yeah, Mikael Engström and uh, yeah. Jorgen Johansson. Yeah, I had some snippets, uh, some song clips posted on my my website, you know, timcashin dot com, and um, of, of that album and. George, I can't remember how Jorgen found them, but I got an email from him saying, hey, is this album finished? And if it is, how can I get a copy? You know, and I said, no. I said, it is, but it's not ready yet, you know, whatever. And he would have to tell you the date, I mean, when, what years it was that he did, you know, that he found out about it. But anyway, just most recently within the past, I don't know, six or eight months or so, yeah. um, he got, uh, I got another email from him and he said, hey, Tim, you probably... Don't remember me, but um, you know I was asking about your album, Find Us on the Dial. Have you got that finished up yet? And something, timing—I don't know what it was—but when I saw that email, um, I hadn't even thought about that project, you know, in a long time. And yeah. I said, I am finishing this and getting it to this guy, yeah. no matter what I do. I'm going to yeah. make sure he gets a CD. So, um, and that's how this thing happened. Um, uh, once, uh, he, I think he played it to Mikhail maybe, and he, I got an email from him yep. and uh, the next thing I know, you know, he's saying, Hey, you know, this, there's a, there's some, you know, some people, if not in America, there's some over our way that would love to hear some more of this. If we, yeah. you know, what can we do to you know make this happen? And yep. there you go. You know, so. Mikhail is a, is probably one of the biggest music devotees I've ever met. You know, he's he's just really uh, has a great love for West Coast AOR, and and uh, when he when he loves something, he really puts his whole heart into it. And I know he really loved this album, and he you know he told me he goes, I truly believe West Coast fans needed to hear what you'd created. So that's that's very cool that those guys were able to interact. And and Mikhail is actually one of our correspondents here at Inside Music Cast. He's he's um, uh, he's been with us for quite a while, and he helps us with the show. And uh, so anyway, Ed, that's great. Yeah, you know, Eddie and I have had. A chance to really dig into this album. We both agree that it's you know just a fantastic gem. If you're into West Coast AOR, you really got to check this out. And it's it's one of the best albums we've heard of this genre in a, in a long time. And it contains all the elements you know we've come to expect from a, a great West Coast album. You know, such as great vocal harmonies, you know, intriguing chord progressions, you know, superb musicianship, and, and excellent production. And I think maybe what we should do is dive into some. Uh, some of the tracks in the album and it opens with a cut called deep in the groove it's a you know it's a funky up-tempo track with a really tight you know vocal harmony and and uh and as the song title indicates it's a very deep groove tell us about the inspiration behind that track oh thanks a lot uh yeah um that tune is uh basically songwriting for me um always as a kid i'm not i'm not a i mean there's there's no 
100% way that I do music. I, I think a lot of writers are the same way, but 90% of the time I'm not a lyric per, first person. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm really about um, a groove and a harmonic, you know, pr- progression, you know, the, har- the, you know the, the harmonic progressions, um, the chord structures and whatnot. So that's really what I base most all my writing on. If I'm sitting around the house and I just get an idea for a certain groove and I hear, you know, some type of a... I, I like to try to start with the hook, you know, or something that's going to keep me wanting to work on the tune um, mm-hmm. to finish it out. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of basically how that tune started out. The kick pattern on that is uh, similar to like a, a, a Steely Dan green earring or something like that. It's a, yeah, it's a yeah. unique kind of a, a, a kick pattern, I think, with that... With that um, with that groove and then yeah and then the the rest just kind of fell into place after that and uh um this project a lot of the projects that I've done previous um I would do pretty much all the music that I could uh instrument wise and then you know hire a specialist to come in and do a solo or something like that you know um but this particular project one of the reasons I'm most proud about it uh is the um uh, I was able to get some of my favorite players to not just not just do little solos and stuff. I mean, they they, they are most important parts, you know, and pieces in this project. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, deep in the groove, um, I was I was probably five songs into this CD, you know, um, and I got a call from one of my favorite, if not the favorite, guitar players that I, I met at Miami, Brian Monroney. And um, he was on the road. He was the musical director for Tom Jones at the time. Okay. And uh, they were playing in uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, which is about three and a half hours from where I live. Yeah. And um, he, he just called me and said, hey, Tim, do you have any work? <laughs> do you have any songs? I'm in Myrtle Beach. I have a day off. I'm thinking about renting a car and coming up. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, timing could not be better because <laughs> I had just started those tunes, literally. <laughs> Wow. And um, so he drove up, and I think he's probably on five or six of the tracks. And that, and that one, um, uh, funny story too. Um, I've always wanted a three thirty-five guitar, even though a Gibson three thirty-five. Even though I'm not a player, I just <laughs> I, I love Larry Carlton, and he was always my favorite, you know, tone growing up. So I told the guitarist that I work with in Grand Funk, Bruce Kulick, and. Um, so there was a guitar show in Charlotte. He went down with me, and he, he said he picked me out one because this is the one you want. You know, I think it's a '73 or something. It's a nice vintage. And um, so Brian comes up, and I said, Brian, I just got this guitar. Can you cut a track with this? I just see what it sounds like. So Brian played the 335 on Deep in the Groove, and that's what started this project. I mean, that's what when I heard that's cool. You know, Brian add add to this, and again, not just you know, the solo, but playing, you know, the rhythm guitar parts mm-hmm. and everything like that, it just it just inspired me to say, finally, I might be able to check this, you know, this box off with the project that I've wanted to do, you know, since mm-hmm. I was a kid. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, just one thing led to another, and, um, you know, I, it just it seemed to just keep getting better and better with the with the, the players that got involved. You know, so yeah. lyrically, it's not you know like like I said, I'm I'm not a I don't really consider myself a, a major lyricist or whatever. I might get lucky here and there, or whatever. But uh, the deep in the groove is is somewhat inspired from 
Parliament's not just knee deep. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's uh, you know it's, so so you know that was kind of where the concept came from. Uh, but uh, other than that, yeah, just the, um, the the groove, the drum groove or whatever um, is pretty much what really sparked that whole idea for that song. Very cool. You know, a track that I can't get enough of is the second track on the album, which is called Good and Good For You. Again, it's a very funky mid-tempo track. Yeah. Again, that song, um, that song actually started with a best friend of mine that I've got it, I did that little 45 record with back in high school, Kenny Long. He, he, he and I would always say, hey, good and good for you. You know, that's it's like a little <laughs> line that we would always say. Yeah. Um, and so that's what turned, that's what, turned into that tune and um but again totally started with the uh with the drum groove and the and the harmonic you know chord progressions and stuff and then uh i thought oh yeah let's, let's and you know kimmy let's 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 work on these lyrics for that and use good and good for you so yeah it kind of kind of played out pretty nice well, hey, Tim and Eddie, uh, let's go ahead and stop for a second. And uh, Eddie and I do want to uh, touch on a few other songs, but uh, let's kick things off with the track we're talking about here. This is Good and Good For You from the album Find Us on the Dial from our guest today, Tim Cashin on Inside Music Cast.
know, we love this uh, this album, uh, and I think we're throwing that out already really early. We, we do. We're starting to love it even more and more that, that we dig deep, deep into it. But we notice something in between the long tracks, which are your compositions, your vocal tracks. It's that uh, you include some musical interludes, almost like little musical vignettes. They're very short vignettes that, that just last long enough to complete uh, to completely intrigue you, to suck you in and, and create a groove or a musical path. And, and one of those little uh, interludes, it's called Running. And uh, it begins and you can hear – it's almost as if you close your eyes and you're, you're walking around a path and you hear birds chirping and, and, uh, and you hear uh, – you know, some gravel, you know, as somebody's walking down a path. And uh, it's uh, it's really neat. This is just one of several vignettes. Um, tell us why and how you, those little vignettes became part of this project. They're kind of, uh, you know, without sounding, you know, like like I'm, I'm, I'm making a masterpiece or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I do, I do try to see a project like this that I've wanted to do forever. Mm-hmm. Um, this is more of a conceptual project you know cd rather than me just writing a bunch of you know a bunch of tunes picking 10 and throwing out however you know that type of thing this one uh as i was writing um as i was finishing one song or whatever you know or working on one song um i would literally you know i'd be thinking you know what would be good to follow this Mm -hmm. you know or you know before it's even you know written rather than like i said just writing a bunch of tunes and then throwing out the ones you don't like, and then finding an order. You yeah, know, yeah, I literally yeah. was trying to do this um, as a conceptual album. And in doing so, I wanted some release songs, basically, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you've got an, a good and aggressive or something that's really up, funky or whatever, and, and a couple songs in, I want a release where it's just kind of, yeah. you know, it's just a, a breath of fresh air type of a thing, you know, yeah. and then get back into it. So th- that's basically what those little snippets are. Yeah, well, they work really well. Me and Rick were just talking about it earlier. And, and you know, there's some other ones that really stand out, and it's called, uh, so a couple of those tracks are Keys in the Trees, Whistle Road, and East Coast Sun. I mean, we, we love the intentionality of what you've done with this because it really links the the whole album into an AO, a true AOR album, you know, Rick? I think it's a, it's a tease. <laughs> because because I liked I, you know when I first when I first heard East Coast Sun I was yeah. just getting into it and then all of a sudden it was gone and I thought what what the hell <laughs> I know, this was this is such a beautiful track and then all of a sudden it faded out and I went oh. and I, I almost asked Mikhail, I almost well, wrote Mikhail to ask him if I had if he gave me the right files <laughs> right. well now you're gonna have to do uh, it now you're gonna have to play it on loop though well, loop. <laughs> Right, right. Well, if there's a positive there, at least it kept you wanting more. Yeah. I'd rather it be that way than the other one. Absolutely. You're like, oh, this is too long. Let's cut it off. So, <laughs> um, now, but uh, yeah, I mean, they, they're just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like I say, it's, it, it's, not, it's not fillers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that at all. Or at least I hope people don't take it that way. It's exactly not that. They're intentionally, you know, written for um, a part of the, you know, the tension and release of the record. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, Eddie, why don't we pause for a couple minutes here and uh, let's play one of these uh, interludes. And this is the track called East Coast Sun from the album Find Us on the Dial and our guest today, Tim Cashin on Inside Music Cast. Get on the road, get on your way. Reverse the frown on the face of the East Coast 
the title track, Find Us on the Dial, harkens or is a nod to Steely Dan. I, I mean, Eddie and I mm-hmm. both agreed about you know on that when we heard it, and I'm in. I think you mentioned earlier that Steely Dan was probably an influence on on your career, right? Or your musical, uh, yes. yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. on your taste, yeah. Uh-huh. Was that kind of a an intentional sort of approach to that song, uh, you know, harkening Steely Dan? Um, well, I, you know, I've been writing since oh gosh, I was, you know, I I, I started writing right when I got that piano, yeah. in third grade or fourth grade, so. Um, I've always, I didn't, uh, write, I didn't cover a tune until I don't even, I can't remember, but uh, <laughs> anyway, point being that, um, I don't like to, I like to be influenced, you know, passionately influenced by music yeah. and don't want to rip off or anything like that. Sure, you know? sure. Yeah. But I do like to show my respect and or admiration, you know, for a style or a song or something like that. So yeah. that one, uh, that one particular one, Finest on the Dial, is probably um, a reflection on Deacon Blues or something, you know, something. I, it's not a particular song or anything, yeah, but yeah. just the mood yeah. of, a, oh, sure. of, a, of that type of a steely dance song or whatever is... Uh, and again, you know, when I was doing this... Um, uh, I was I would keep in my head, you know, my my favorite artist that I wanted mm-hmm. to try to show respect to, you know, like you know you've influenced me without you know actually meeting them and telling them, you know, that right. type of thing. Exactly. So uh, there's there's a handful of uh, West Coast AOR um, musicians that would you know that would that have played a big part of me, you know, sitting down and and thinking now what you know how how could I use you know what he's done or what they've done or that, yeah. like that kind of thing, you know, and, and kind of shed some thank you, so to speak. Sure, you know? yeah. Well, Tim, there are so many great tracks on this album, and Eddie and I were just right before the interview, we were talking about this album and kind of reviewing all of the tracks, and mm-hmm. they're all fantastic. I mean, they truly are. This is a this is the type of album you can start at the beginning and just let it cruise to the end and not skip anything because it's it's just so solid. Right. And I'd love to play a sample from every song or, or uh, all the tracks, but of course we don't have that much time. But uh, I do want to play, stop and play one here, and this is the one we were talking about a little earlier called Find Us on the Dial from our guest today, Tim Cashin on Inside Music Cast.
another track that uh, me and Rick have been talking about is Funkified. Now, as a keyboardist, you know, uh, I noticed right away that, that you love using, you know, um, your deep Rhodes patches, but sometimes you throw in there on, on this on this particular track, you throw in a clavinet and and some vintage lead you know patches, and uh, you know I mean this is uh, must have been a really fun track for you to to get funky with. It is, and uh, and that track is a bonus track, and hmm. it was um, it's something that uh, uh, it's something that I back in the day I would uh, because it's. It's a bonus, like uh, I wouldn't say demo, but it kind of, it, you know, it, it was never really finished. And um, when I sent it to the guys, they liked it, and they're like, "No, I'll put it on as a bonus track." So back in the day, I would, I, I'm not, I don't really, con- well, I guess I am somewhat of a control freak, but um, <laughs> I would never, I would never have released something like that back in my younger days, just out of fear of like, oh, it's not perfect or it's not this and why not do that? But I'm seeing so many of my favorite artists now or whatever releasing, you know, stuff that they did that wasn't perfect, you know, or whatever, you know, as a demo kind of a thing, as a, you know, look what, look what I did before it sounded great, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what that track is about, but yeah, that's, uh, that's a, that was a fun tune to do. Um, yeah. Uh, again, that, that one was pretty much was just all me, you know, in the studio messing around. But, um, uh, yeah, you know, like I said, you never know as a writer what people are going to like. Usually the ones that I think they're going to (laughs) like, you know, it's the opposite of the ones that they, they come out and like the ones, oh, really? You like that one? Oh, okay. You know, so you can't really, you know, you can't, no way to really have a crystal ball, you know, to to find out what, what's going to go over or not. But, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do have a lot of, uh, of uh, R&B uh, influence um, as far as uh, it growing up. And, and, uh, and I like to put, I, li- I like to have a good groove and a good, you know, that's, like I said, that's usually yeah. the first thing I go for yeah. um, is, a, is a funky groove type thing. Mm-hmm. Well, Tim and Eddie, I want to take one more break. And uh, there's one track I'd love to play that I feel really shows some incredible vocal versatility, um, beautiful harmonies on this track. And, uh, This one just fits right in with that whole West Coast vibe. And this is a track called None of a Kind from our guest today, Tim Cashin, and his album Find Us on the Dial on Inside Music Cast. Oh 
yesterday morning wasn't just another day Cause when I tried to look, couldn't see a thing But I closed my eyes and suddenly you were there about ready to, to wrap up here but we have a couple questions more on the on the musical side the technical and it, the first question is um, you know the vocals on the album there's some there's some tracks that are that are more singular in harmonics and there's some that are very complex in which you do you use your um, you know falsetta to, to do amazing arrangements and, and chordings while your regular voice uh, full voice is, is singing the lead do you and, and of course we also know that with the, the horn arrangements so, uh, you know, you do a great job in injecting some of the horns in, in some of the tracks. And I guess my combination question is, tell us about the arranging of the vocals and the horns. How did, uh, how did that work out? Did you do everything yourself? Uh, the, all the vocals, yeah, all the vocals are me on the record. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's, another, that's another part of me that um, I wanted to... Um, try to develop as a young kid, um, you know, really unique vocal harmonies. I mean, you know, very, very few people, you know, I think really attempt to do anything 
other than just, you know, just standard what you think, what you think you're going to hear. And there it is, you know. Uh, so I like to change that up. I mean, my degree was jazz vocal. So, uh, you know, in, in, at the University of Miami, we were doing all types of, uh, you know, Manhattan transfer type harmonies and stuff back in the, when Graydon was producing the records and sure. stuff like that. So, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and even Beatles had some, you know, beep, 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 yeah, you know, just weird, you right. know, different harmonies than what, you know, than just the typical norm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, I have always tried to really let my audience know that that's, um, the next important factor, like after the, after the groove part, you know, um, the, the, the backup vocals, because, um, I, I enjoy, you know, the, the, um, the different, I, different harmonies than, you know, just your typical norm. I, I've been, uh, hired for, you know, locally to do, uh, vocal arrangements for other people's projects and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I, I just enjoy doing it. I just try to find what I think people want to hear and then find a way to make it just a little different, you know? Right. And, um, so that's kind of how I approach this record as well. Yep. Awesome. Uh, the brass, the brass are, uh, two of my best friends, uh, college, uh, buddies and, um, trumpet and sax. And I, a lot of times, um, I've been working with them for years and they right off the bat, you know, I, you know, I was listening to, uh, you know, Jerry Hay arrangements and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, I kind of turned them on to Jerry Hay and, uh, back in the Al Jarreau days and whatnot. And, so they just relied on me. They were like, if you want brass, we'll come in, and you just tell us what to play, and we'll play it. You know, that kind of thing. Right. So yeah. um, the the brass in Good and Good For You um, is uh, I, it's kind of unique in that it, uh, it kind of copies some of the guitar lines, I think, at one point or something like that. So I, I, was, I was really happy with those guys. Of course, if they have an idea or they're like, you know, it's not, again, like I'm the control freak. I'll give them the basis to... <laughs> to work with yeah. and then they either they're like yeah don't change a thing or hey how about this you know that kind of right, thing but right. um yeah it's a it's a good they're they're my the trumpet guy i've known since i was like two years old i think i mean literally um and uh the other uh the sax player marcus he's out on the road now with uh marshall tucker band i met him uh the first year when i went to app and um okay. so yeah good good close friends and uh every time now we're you know all spread out, but when we come home for holidays, I think I'm going to try to do some tracks while they're in town. Yeah, um, over the holidays, so it's, it's it's far and far and few in between now. But uh, I still we still like to get together and, and do it when we can. Yeah, awesome. well, you had some talented guys on this project, and again, the uh, album is called "Find Us on the Dial," and it's by our guest today, Tim Cashin. And uh, you know, the the only place you can get it right now is out of Japan. I, I noticed that you can uh, order it as an import on Amazon. Uh, it's on some other. There's some different sites where you can get it, but I guess the big question is for for those who uh, don't want to order the import, will it be available here in the states or in other parts of Europe anytime soon? Maybe as a download or or the or as a you know to be able to get a physical copy. Yeah, I, I would like to do that. Um, the the like I said, the way it came about was such a whirlwind, sure. you know, uh, that uh, that uh, I was lucky, you know, fortunate that uh, Pevine was was ready to move really quickly on it. So um, yes, I, I will. I, I am definitely. I'm, you know, now the holiday times coming up, so it might be, yeah. um, you know, a little while, but not too long until uh, I get. Uh, duplicated here in the states or whatever and uh yeah i definitely would like for it to be a download as well because i mean that seems to be the you know i know the, the hardcore fans like myself want a hard copy sure. but, um 
Uh, I think a lot of the majority like the 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 availability of getting it right then, you know. So uh, I hope to have that done fairly soon. I know, I'm looking at Eddie, and I know what he's thinking. He wants the vinyl version. Oh my God, yes! <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, so I would stink- love that. Wouldn't yeah, that I would be awesome? That. That'd I mean, be the next thing for sure. <laughs> I mean, everybody's pressing this stuff. I mean, why not? You know, just like you know. It's, anyway, <laughs> no, uh, we agree with you. This is uh, it is the holidays, and so we encourage everybody to get out there and and buy this buy this album. It's it's beautiful. It's you so will fantastic. not regret it. This is this is a treasure that we found, and and uh, so we say basically buy yourself a Christmas gift. Your personal for yourself. Be <laughs> selfish. You have our permission <laughs> and uh you know before we go i want to give one more uh thanks to uh, mikhail engstrom our, yes. our correspondent here from sweden yes, for, for yes. connecting thanks, us mikhail, yes yeah thanks so much absolutely thanks, tim thanks for joining us on inside music cast and happy holidays to you yeah thanks thank you so much rick and eddie and i appreciate it and um yeah happy holidays to yourself all right take care it's been fun take care okay Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Tim Cashin for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Mikhail Ingstrom, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Unilon for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. There are too many-